Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We have a unique show for you today. First of all, we're coming to you by tape. So while normally this is a call-in show and we love to hear from you, uh, today is by tape, so don't call in. I think that uh, the phones will just ring because we're probably somewhere finishing off uh, the last of the stuffing or whatever <laughs> whatever went on in, during the week. Uh, but today's show is, is unique in that I'm going to talk about uh, some of the common mistakes that I have seen made in gardening and landscaping over 33 plus years of, of being a horticulture agent here in Texas. And uh, unfortunately, there are some that are quite common. Uh, but I, I was trying to think about, you know, why don't we do this on a positive way rather than a negative way? But uh, in other words, instead of saying, here's the mistake, say, here's what you should do. But I, I think it's, I just think it's more effective to talk about it uh, from a mistake standpoint, of course. Uh, and I'll talk about then what, what you should do instead. So here we go with uh, 50 of the common gardening and landscaping mistakes that I have seen people make. We're going to start off with number one, not preparing the soil before planting. Uh, it all begins in the soil. It's the foundation of all success in growing plants. And uh, if you don't start with the soil right, uh, it is really difficult to have success. Uh, you, can, you can do a lot of things, water, fertilize, all kinds of things. But starting with good soil is critical. And I like to say that by the time you put a plant or a seed in the soil, you're about 75%, if not more, of the way to success or failure with your crop. Uh, and I know it's easy to get excited in the spring. You go buy plants, you come home, where am I going to put them? And the soil's not ready. Uh, so uh, do the soil prep before you do the planting, and you will have much, much better chances of success. Number two, not building raised beds. Uh, when it rains, it pours. And in our area, we get quite a few inches of rain a year. And so uh, while there are times when it's too dry, there are times when it is way too wet. And working the soil when it's wet is bad for soil structure. Uh, and plants not getting drainage, having their roots in soggy, uh, poorly aerated conditions uh, is really bad for the plants. They either suffer and, and don't produce as well, or in some cases just flat die. So with raised beds, you can help the root zone drainage with most of our plants. And I'm not talking about trees there, uh, for example, but uh, even with shrubs, having a large area that is raised and improved can really help out. And we have a few plants that can survive in a swamp and those are the exception. But raised beds are important. A 90-plus-year-old gardener told me one time, you can always add water, but you can't take it away. And that that is stuck with me very true. Number three, not choosing adapted, disease-resistant pests and varieties, um, and, and species even. You know, there are some plants that are just prone to problems. And uh, we'll take roses. Uh, now, Modern roses, or even especially modern roses now, are even being developed 
for disease resistance, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, the, the old antique roses, many of those were either resistant or tolerant. They were able to keep going uh, despite the diseases. But if you planted one of the, oh, let's say, prima donna roses, uh, typically of the past, beautiful buds and blooms, but my goodness, you have to stand over it with an umbrella and keep the rain off. And then you've got to have a, a spray wand in the other hand to spray it after every rain and so on. Trying to keep the thing alive, that's just a problem. We have so many plants, native plants, adapted plants, that both do well here, that there's no need to plant something that is just going to be prone to diseases and pests all the time. Number four, overwatering. Uh, I've already talked about the problem with soggy wet soil conditions, but people do overwater. And I see this especially with lawns. Uh, we get enough rain here to where your watering of the lawn, if you just wanted to keep it alive and looking decent, would really be minimal. And it would primarily be in those super hot summer months where we tend to not get rain, uh, July and August being typical times. Uh, but um, it just, you don't need to overwater. It wastes, money, it wastes money, and it does another thing. Uh, our water has a lot of sodium, and every time you water, you're adding sodium to the soil. Sodium destroys soil structure. It raises pH. And there's issues with that, and so why make your soil more sodic uh, when you really could even save money on the water and just not do that so much. Overwatering also contributes to diseases. Number five, shallow frequent watering. Um, it is better to give a good soaking and then let the soil mostly dry out before you water again. Uh, that allows air to move in between the soil particles that were originally filled with water when you gave your good deep soaking. And it's good for roots. It's good for root development. And it's more efficient when you do when you water that way. And the reason is if you water just, let's say I'll be extreme, a third of an inch uh, every day, most of that is just going to sit on the leaves of the lawn or in the thatch or in the mulch of your garden and evaporate away and you essentially don't get any in the soil. Uh, when you give a good deep soaking and wet that soil six inches deep at least, uh, then you are, you're still going to have evaporation from the surface, but the majority of what you applied is going down into the soil. Number six, planting things that love sun in the shade are planting things that need shade in the sun. Uh, sometimes when we decide we want to plant a plant, I'll, I'll use roses again. Uh, you, you see a rose that you just really want to have in your landscape, but your landscape is filled with large trees or maybe the area where you want to plant it, uh, the house shades it for half the day uh, in addition to maybe trees shading it. Uh, every plant is different in its amount of sun or amount of shade or tolerance to one or the other. And so making sure that you select a plant for the sun exposure that that area receives uh, is the key to success. A tomato will grow with only three or four hours of sun, but it will not produce well at all with only three or four hours of sun. That's true for fruit trees and other things, but uh, planting, plant them where they want to be, and when you start forcing them into areas they don't want to be in, then you're going to have a problem in order, uh, a problem with production and success, and in some cases even disease issues. Number seven, trying to grow a lawn in too much shade. Now, 
we love trees. Trees make our outdoor environment uh, tolerable in the summer and pleasant during much of the rest of the year. Uh, and so we want those, but we also want to have a lawn. But if you think about it, in nature, you typically have a meadow or you have a forest. Uh, as you get more and more tree cover, the grass just does not thrive. Uh, and so uh, the lawn is a competition with the trees too, by the way, for water and nutrients. It's, it's shallower, relatively shallower root system has a first shot at all of that. And when, you, when we p try to put them together, which we do in almost every home lawn, uh, home landscape, uh, there is a competition there. So as you move a lawn into the shade, uh, you no longer can plant Bermuda grass as it goes into more shade. And then zoysia would be the next to drop out as it gets in too much shade. And finally, St. Augustine. And if you can't grow St. Augustine, you need to not put a lawn there in that spot. Uh, it is just, it's, it's just not going to do well. And so there are other options, ground covers and whatnot, but just keep that in mind. Number eight, planting vegetables and flowers at the wrong time. Uh, we have a really unique season here. And by the way, we have a vegetable garden planting date uh, chart on the Master Gardener website, the Brazos County Master Gardeners website. Uh, and you'll see when to plant all kinds of things. And what you see on there is a lot of things grow in the spring uh, and a few things get through the summer and then a lot of things grow in the fall again. Uh, and if we don't get our tomatoes, as an example, if we don't get those things out by mid-March, or maybe late March, uh, then we're not going to see the amount of productivity that we could because it's going to get too hot for them to set fruit. And so you just need to be aware of the, what you're choosing to plant and make sure you get it at the right time. And we can help you with that at the Extension Office. Number nine, not training trees when they are young. Uh, trees often grow narrow angles, uh, branches that cross, uh, branches that are too low to be permanent branches. Think about this, when you buy a tree, no branch on that tree, unless you bought a very large tree, no branch on that tree is gonna be permanent. All the permanent branches are gonna be taller than what you bought in most cases. And so we have to do training on them. And by training them, we get a good structure and we have success and we build a beautiful tree. When you don't, later on, you're going to have to remove those branches that should have been removed early in the training process. And when you remove them, you're probably using a chainsaw or at least a larger saw. And that creates a bigger wound, which takes more time to heal and allows the interior wood to be exposed to microbes and moisture, which causes rot. So training them early on is really important, and especially with the trees. That is, is really important. The other thing would be not training uh, shrubs or trees correctly or training them incorrectly. Every, every plant has a particular natural design to the way it grows. And, and for our aesthetic purposes, we have goals. Maybe you want a formal landscape with boxed hedges and so on. By the way, if you do that, you're going to be pruning a lot more. Uh, our training and shearing a lot more. Uh, or maybe you want a very natural look. Uh, and a lot of shrubs lend themselves to a natural look and don't have to be sheared into Dr. Seuss looking creatures. Uh, so, but, but you want to do it correctly for that plant. And a lot of people go out and think they know how to prune 
or god forbid they drive around town and see some of the printing jobs by untrained people uh, and uh, they think that's how you do it such as murdering your crepe myrtles every every winter uh, so you want to do the correct thing starting early on and you'll have success number 11 pruning flowering trees and shrubs at the wrong time so basically uh, things that bloom in the spring late winter and spring they create those bloom buds on the plant in the late summer and early fall and so if you prune them in the winter you're removing all the bloom buds and you don't have as much of a spring show things that bloom in the summer produce their bloom buds on new growth. So here comes the new shoots. Uh, they are hopefully getting good sunlight, so they produce bloom buds, and then they bloom. So example of the first would be roses that only bloom once. Uh, it would be uh, red buds, for example, that, that bloom only in the spring. And things that bloom in the summer would be something like an oleander or the vitex or chaste tree. So we can prune the summer bloomers in the winter. Uh, the others, we, we try to do a little trimming on them after their bloom period. Gives them plenty of time to grow new branches and set buds. Uh, and sometimes we prune spring bloomers in the winter, such as with fruit trees, but that's a whole different reason for that. We're not trying to get the most blooms and make the prettiest tree that we can. We're trying to grow fruit. Uh, but for ornamentals, make sure you prune things at the right time. Number 12, bad pruning cuts. I don't know, this, these are not, by the way, in any particular order, but if we were to say how common is something, I think this would be near the top of the list. Um, people, again, prune according to how they've seen things pruned, and uh, that's generally not a good idea. A lot of good information online on how to make a pruning cut. But basically, you want to follow the branch back. Let's say you're pruning a branch off of the trunk. Follow it back to where it attaches to the trunk. And right as it attaches, it flares out to attach to the trunk. Right as that flare begins, that's where you want to cut it off. Uh, that leaves the collar, which is the, the part that does the best job of healing over or covering over, I should say, that wound quickly. Uh, if you cut further out than that, the stub dies, and now it can't close over because you have a dead 2 by 4 essentially sticking out, uh, and, and they can't close over that, that opening. If you cut closer, remember I said where it starts to flare out? Well, as you go closer and closer to the trunk from where it begins to flare out, the wound gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, because you're you know it's flaring out it's getting larger so that takes longer to heal and you're removing the best healing tissues for that wound area you're removing them so pruning at the proper place is important pruning uh, and removing limbs that are too large to hold with one hand without using a three cut method is also a mistake now I'm going to try to describe it on the radio but you can look it up three cut pruning method uh, first, you cut upward from beneath the branch about a third of the way up, uh, let's say a, a foot out, just to give a general amount, uh, from, from the tree. And then you come in a little, maybe four inches, and cut downward from above until that branch breaks and falls away. The first cut 
kept the weight of that branch from stripping the bark off all the way in into and partly down the trunk of the tree, which is a horrible wound that'll take forever if it even heals at all. The third cut then is made at the just outside the collar, like I described, and you have something much smaller you can hold on to to keep it from falling and stripping. But that's the three cut method. But uh, bad pruning cuts are a huge mistake people make. And when you think about a tree being hopefully longer than your life uh, in that landscape and just getting more beautiful and stately in time, we do not want to start off with that kind of pruning cut. Number 13, misusing weed killers. Uh, you need to, number one, have the right ingredient. Someone, something may say this kills lawn weeds, but does it kill broadleaf weeds like chickweed and henbit and so on? Does it kill grassy weeds like annual bluegrass or crabgrass or many other grasses? Because the products tend to be better against one or the other in terms of killing them after they're growing or preventing them from sprouting and establishing the pre-emergent and the post-emergent products. Uh, so find out what the weeds are, use the right ingredient, use it at the right rate. If a teaspoon's good, a tablespoon is not better. Uh, and I'm gonna say more about that in just a moment and use it at the right time. If it, uh, the analogy I like to use is baseball. If you swing a beautiful swing, but the ball has just gone by, it does you no good, right? Well, sometimes people put a pre-emergent out after the seeds have already germinated and are established in small plants. And most pre-emergents can't, can't work and help in that situation. So you want to make sure and, and do the right timing. But let's talk about rate. There are many products, especially pre-emergent or weed control products for your lawn that uh, have compounds in them that inhibit root growth. That's how they kill the weeds. And those, same, those compounds also inhibit your lawn root growth. So let's say you have a St. Augustine lawn and it's struggling along and it's sending out these runners and putting down roots at, at each node as the runner grows and you over apply a product that inhibits that rooting, you can grab the runner and pick it up. It's not even connected to the soil. The roots are just little stubs. We call them clubbed roots uh, that, that cannot establish. And that is just because of the, the product and really poor uh, timing and, and uh, or excuse me, poor rate of application. Uh, a lot of people, you know, the teaspoon, okay, tablespoon better. Uh, I understand that thinking, but it is wrong, and you you actually do more harm uh, than good. You can also, in some of these products, you can also damage the trees and shrubs that might have roots out in that area as well. Using weed and feed combination products is number 14. In general, it's better to fertilize when you should fertilize and do weed control with the correct product when you should do weed control for that weed. To combine them very seldom creates uh, uh, both of the goals, fertilizing and killing the weeds as efficiently as applying them separately. So it would be like, um, you know, buying some food product that also had medicine in it. Uh, you know, but that doesn't, that, that's not how we do it. Put the fertilizer down that your soil and, and plants need at the right rate, at the right time. And then if you're going to use a pre-emergent, put it down 
when it should be to get ahead of those weeds. And if you are going to use a post-emergent, uh, those need to be applied at certain times because in the heat of summer, not even heat, when temperatures are above about 85 degrees, uh, some of those products damage St. Augustine. They weaken it or they can outright kill it, but generally they just weaken it and then we have other issues. So in the spring, uh, the time to put down pre-emergent weed control is going to be um, maybe mid-February most years. And uh, the time to fertilize is about early to mid-April after you've mowed the lawn twice. So a combined product you know, you got to give up one or the other to do that. Number 15, planting invasive plants. Well, I think just saying it explains it. Uh, we have plants that uh, just absolutely are invasive. Uh, you know, it may be good plants like Bermuda lawn invades the the uh, beds of your of your your flower beds and so on, uh, or it may be plants that get out in nature like some uh, some of our ligustrums can do, and and there are many other plants that can become invasive. Uh, it just creates an ecological issue, uh, but also it can create issues for you uh, in in your garden and landscape. Uh, number sixteen, harvesting vegetables too late. Vegetable, most vegetables have a peak time. Some, like let's say a winter squash, uh, like a spaghetti squash or an acorn squash, we let them get fully mature and then we harvest them. But most of them, like green beans uh, and uh, squash, the fruit, the, the summer squash fruit, uh, cucumbers and on down the line, they have a peak time when they're tender and tasty. And after that, uh, they, they go downhill fast. So find out what that is for your vegetables. And in most cases, it's not letting it get as big as it's going to get, but it's picking it well ahead of that time when it's doing its best. And sometimes uh, it's, it's uh, a little bit of a challenge to learn about all the vegetables, but you can do it. Number 17, planting too large of a garden. <laughs> Uh, new gardeners, oh, I'm so excited every year to r have people call or email me that are new gardeners because I think it's the best hobby there is. Uh, and so in that enthusiasm, we also create a large garden. Well, a couple of problems. Number one, you're learning to garden. And so there's a lot of things that you're going to do wrong, which is okay, uh, but you learn from that. And when you create a giant garden and June hits and you're pulling weeds over all these square feet of garden that you didn't mulch and that, you know, so on down the line, uh, it, it's no fun. Uh, start small and grow. It's really the best way to do it. Planting too densely is number 18. In other words, not thinning. Uh, root crops like a carrot, for example, when you don't thin them to about one and a half times the width of that mature carrot root, uh, they are spindly and they don't develop good roots. Uh, if it's lettuce, uh, unless you're just creating a little what we call cut and come again where you essentially mow off the lettuce patch and, and let it regrow, uh, plants need to be spaced in order to do their best. So uh, if you if you overseed, then make sure and thin those out. Number 19, not mulching flower and vegetable beds. You get free mulch every year. If you don't have a tree in your lawn, all your neighbors, out of the goodness of their heart, are putting bags of leaves at the curbside in the late fall and winter. Isn't that nice of them? And you can bring those home uh, and save them 
because all through the year, next summer, you're going to need to be mulching your gardens. And there's different ways of storing them. The plastic bags tend to break down in the sun, so don't stick them out in the sun. But seriously, constantly mulching those flower and vegetable beds to keep a thick enough layer of mulch that the sun doesn't hit the soil. Because where sun hits the soil, nature plants a weed. Where the soil is bare, uh, it gets hot and roots cannot tolerate hot temperatures. And the soil surface can get over 100 degrees when the sun is shining on it in summer. Mulch helps avoid that. Uh, there's, there's other reasons, but uh, mulch, mulch, mulch. Number 20, not controlling those garden weeds early. If you do have weeds, then you want to control them as early as you can. Once a weed is established, you have to really whack at it and dig it out with a hoe to get it out of there. But if it's a little tiny germinating weed, not more than an inch or two high even, uh, you can take a hoe uh, and slice right under the surface. It's very easy to weed them. In fact, at that stage, you can throw four to six sheets of newspaper over them, wet the newspaper to make it you know, one newspaper overlap another, and then throw leaves on top, and they just, the weeds, you block the light and they all die. That That's just so easy compared to hand weeding. But the earlier you get going, the better. If it's in your lawn, um, once the weeds start to bloom and set seed, the products that would have been effective against them are not effective against them. And you already have a seed crop growing. Uh, but when they're young, that is a time when they are very susceptible to those kind of products. Number 21, purchasing infested, diseased, or stunted plants. And you may be thinking, well, who would do that? Well, people do. Uh, sometimes maybe they're, the roots are infested with nematodes. Uh, and pulling them out of the pot, checking the roots for those little knots on the roots. Uh, you can check that, look for diseases, and so on. But if a plant is infested, diseased, or stunted, it's just not going to perform well for you, or you're going to be bringing in a problem. And stunted can happen when they sit in a garden center way too long, and they don't get watered right, and your little transplants start to have a purplish look to the leaves. That's a sign of the probably not being watered proper enough or properly. They're just not going to perform well. 22, choosing bedding plants with the most or the largest blooms. Now, I know this is irresistible, and I got to tell you, I'm guilty of it at times myself. But when you have a little tiny plant in a tiny cell six-pack, uh, cell pot at the nursery, and it's got a giant flower or several giant flowers on it, uh, it its ability to really establish, grow, and bloom well is not there. You know, I'd tell you pinch them all off. Uh, I know you're not going to do that. Uh, but uh, it's better to buy a good, strong, healthy plant, get it in, and when it do does bloom, it's going to be bigger and more beautiful than the thing that you bought that was overwhelmed trying to take care of the little flowers that it already had on it. Planting seeds at the improper depth is number 23. Uh, seeds need to be planted about... Um, two to four times, or three to four times, the width of the seed deep. And that's a generalization. There's exceptions, but for most seeds, that's true. Uh, there are a few seeds that need light. An example would be um, lettuce. Lettuce seeds actually need the red wavelength of light to germinate. And if you bury them and that light wavelength doesn't reach them, it's, they're not going to germinate well at all. Uh, so look at how deep to plant them. Plant them that deep. 24. Not enough light when you start seeds indoors. 
I think seed starting is a wonderful thing. It's fun. Uh, it adds another uh, element to gardening. It gets you growing things before the weather outside is ready for you to plant them. Uh, and so uh, go for it. But purchase a light that has the proper wavelengths for plants. Not for humans, but for plants. Most of the lighting in your home is designed for humans. And, and, it, and the wavelengths are such that create the mood, you know, the, the uh, bright daytime look or the warm uh, incandescent type of, of light look uh, for, for that kind of setting. Uh, but plant lights have different wavelengths. And purchase one and, and grow your seedlings underneath it. Uh, if they're near a window, the light is just almost always not going to be good enough to really start good, healthy seedlings. So good light creates wonderful seedlings, and uh, it does so much better. Number 25, planting shrubs and trees too deeply. Uh, the mistake is made this way often. Uh, we dig a hole, and then we put the plant down in the hole, and it ends up that the plant is going to be now deeper than it was originally growing. You want to find the top most root on the plant. Come down the trunk until you find the first root. And that root should be right about at the soil level. That's the proper. So don't dig the hole too deep, because if you do and fill it in with soil, they just settle. So dig it at the proper depth and plant it at the proper depth, and you will have much more success. 26, not checking for uh, and cutting circling roots. And this is true of woody ornamentals primarily. Uh, but if, if you've got a root that's been going around and around a pot, which you probably are going to have when that plant's been grown for a while in the pot, uh, those roots need to be cut. And they will branch out and re-sprout re out new roots pretty quickly. Even a couple of weeks, you're going to see new roots coming. And so cut them, because they don't underwind, unwind underground. And if the root circle is small enough around the trunk, as that trunk gets bigger and as the root gets bigger, the root ends up strangling the trunk. And at the time when your tree should be entering its prime, you're now looking at uh, a tree that has to come out or that has major issues that can't be fixed. Check for them and cut them. Don't be afraid to do that. Number 27, putting a large plant under a window. Now, we used to not have many options for plants. And so this was understandable. It still shouldn't have been done. But uh, I grew up in a house where you could hardly look out of most of the windows in one side because the shrubs had overgrown all of them. And it's hard to keep a large shrub small when it doesn't want to be. Uh, and so you want to choose now. We have many options that are dwarf or more compact. Uh, and look at how big that's going to get. And look at how high the window is. And, and plant and choose plants accordingly. Uh, but that, that's important. One that goes along with this one is number 28. Planting trees and shrubs too close to your home, to a sidewalk, to power lines. When you're going to plant a tree, look up if there are power lines choose something much, much smaller, or move over uh, enough to avoid them. Because the companies will prune them free for you, but you won't like what they do. Trust me. If you've got a sidewalk and you're putting little tiny shrubs in on both sides, if those shrubs are going to be four or five or more feet wide as they get bigger, your sidewalk's going to become a gauntlet 
where guests have to start at the car, grab the kids by the arm, and sprint toward the front door to break through the shrub gauntlet that you now have. Uh, so think about how big they're going to get. Trees, too. Trees get huge, and uh, you don't need to put two trees uh, very close together at all. Number 29, planting fast-growing trash trees. A lot of times this is done for us by the folks that are creating the neighborhood. Uh, but uh, in general, if a tree grows fast, it's not going to be a good species. Any, any rule I make is going to have exceptions. But seriously, uh, a, a good, uh, moderately gr fast-growing tree that has good branch structure and all the features that you want in this big shade tree or blooming tree or whatever, you're going to have much more success and happiness with that than something that just grows fast. Uh, and it's because they often develop bad angles. Uh, one, one example would be Bradford pear. We love those for the spring blooms and the fall color. But if you plant a Bradford pear, just count on about 10 years down the line, uh, taking it out and uh, putting something else in uh, because it starts to fall apart. Uh, at some point, it's not worth having. Uh, some of the ash trees can be this way. Uh, and they can be very narrow and, and uh, grow fast, but die young. Choose well. Call us at the Extension Office. We can help you find a good tree that'll do well for your site. Number 30, buying the largest tree you can find. This goes back to the plants growing in pots. A, a, a tree growing in nature is going to have roots reaching well out beyond the branches. So if you grow that tree in a little five-gallon pot, let's say, all the roots are wrapped up inside there, and it just creates more transplant stress. The smaller the tree is, typically, the larger or the less the stress in establishment, and in time, it will quickly catch up to the tree that you bought that was larger, but now is sitting there not establishing, taking maybe a year or two or three just to get going well. Uh, and so don't buy the largest tree you can find. You're not buying trees by the board foot like you buy lumber. Number 31, not mulching a wide area around new trees and shrubs. Trees want to grow in the forest and you got to keep the grass away as they get established. Give them as wide of a mulched area as you can. They will love that. It also does a, the most important thing, I think, is it keeps the weed eater and the, the, the uh, or string trimmer and the lawnmower away. Uh, because when you bump the tender bark of a young tree, you create openings and cankers can infect that opening. And, and uh, it, it's an issue for the tree's growth and, and health. So get the mulch at least to keep the grass away for that purpose, but even f better for the tree uh, to give it more of the forest floor environment. Number 32, not staking properly or waiting too long to remove the wires. If a tree is properly grown, it probably doesn't need to be staked. If it does need to be staked, you want to stake it and leave the wires a little loose so the branch, so the trunk can move. Uh, the movement in the trunk helps strengthen those tissues. And so you don't want to tie it down like it's a rocket about to explode and take off. Uh, give it some room to move and then remove those at about six months at the most a year. Don't leave them past that uh, because then they start to develop their own problems. 33, not watering new woody plants properly during the first season. Again, think about that root system, that pot shaped root system you put in the ground. Uh, it takes a while for that tree to get roots out 
and some of them go two and a half times the height of the tree. Uh, it takes a while to do that. And when it do, as it does that, it becomes very resilient. We don't have to water them almost ever. But that first year, we do. And we need to water them regularly. And again, we can help at the, at the extension office, depending on the size of tree you bought and the species of tree you bought. We can help you with watering them. If What I like to do is put a circular berm of soil around the plant that's, that's you know, twice as wide as the root ball you put in. And that way you can fill that berm up with maybe three inches of soil or water and it soaks straight down into the root zone. Number 34, choosing containers that are too small for vegetables and flowers. Uh, I think container gardens are a wonderful idea, but if you try to grow a tomato in a one gallon or two gallon pot, it is just, it's gonna get dry regularly, and while you can keep it alive, it's not gonna be as fruitful as it could be. I'd say five gallons is a minimum for a tomato. 10 gallons really is about as small as you should go to have the best production and success. And that's true with a lot of the different plants that we grow. 35 is choosing poorly adapted fruit, vegetables, and species. Uh, I know, you, you, let's say you like apples. Well, uh, you can grow an apple here, but the variety options we have are very limited. And uh, you have to choose one that is very low chill so that it will grow here, uh, low chilling requirement. Uh, and so either avoid the species because it, it's, we're really stretching its zone or choose the, the few varieties that might do okay here. Uh, so that would, that would include uh, uh, not just the species, but uh, the particular varieties that have the attributes that we're looking for. Number 36 is not planting a pollinator variety for some fruit plants. Peaches do not need a pollinator but apples need pollinators. Pears mostly need pollinators. The vast majority do. Uh, we don't grow blueberries in this area, but blueberries will set okay without a pollinator, Some of the, most of the varieties. But when you add a pollinator, you get bigger berries because the pollination is better and there's more little seeds inside which grow bigger berries. So if it needs a pollinator, make sure and plant one. A pollinator would be a different variety that blooms at the same time. Number 37, not training, pruning your fruit trees and vines correctly. We want to build a good structure and we have different strategies for different types of fruit trees. An apple or a pear typically is pruned to a central leader or a modified central leader system. So think of a pine tree, one trunk going all the way up, uh, but in the side branches coming off of it. Peaches and plums are typically pruned to an open bowl shape or a chalice shape. Uh, where you have strong branches, but the, the center is open to allow light through for better production through the plant. AgriLife Extension Horticulture Department, the Aggie Horticulture website, aggie-horticulture.tamu.edu, has information on every specific variety of fruit and vine you might want to grow here, and some that you, you, know, you probably won't have success with here. Uh, and it tells you how to print them. Easy, free. 38, not scouting for plant problems. The earlier you find a problem, the easier it is to shut it down. With If you're an organic gardener, your options are more limited than someone who uses synthetics also. And so you are going to have better success with your organic options early on than you will later. And 
you have not, if you do it early, the plant hasn't already lost half its foliage. Uh, and so it's not going to be set back. It's not going to be hampered in production. Early detection and action for plant problems. Get out there and just walk through the garden and check things out, see what's going on. And 39, not identifying the pest or disease before you spray. Um, it, products are often pest specific. There are some things that are grenades. I mean, you throw them out there and every insect with six legs is going to be killed. There are other things that are more like arrows. They uh, go through and hit a target, like a BT kills caterpillars uh, specifically. Well, you want to make sure and choose a product that's going to be effective against the pest at the stage that you're spraying, the pest stage that you're spraying it. Diseases, the same thing. Not everything is equal. Again, call your county extension office. Let us help with the identification and then the recommendation uh, for the product that is going to be most effective. Number 40, no soil test. A soil test tells you what's in the soil so you can fertilize accordingly to just buy a product that says this is for tomatoes or this is for citrus or whatever. Uh, if you already have too much of a nutrient in your soil and that product is just going to give you a lot more, then you're just creating more of a problem. So start with a soil test, determine what you need, and then buy accordingly. Number 41, over-fertilizing, under-fertilizing. Uh, these can be problems if you don't fertilize enough some crops, like corn, are not going to be as productive. Uh, if you over-fertilize, or fertilize, uh, you already have nutrients in the soil, some of the legumes, like beans and peas, will be pushed toward more vine growth and less production. And so the, there are examples all through the flowers and the vegetables, but fertilize the right amount. 42, use of snake oils. Oh my gosh, there are so many products that have testimony-based evidence. You know, Joe, the gardener next door in the ad, says, uh, this is wonderful. Uh, or don't go for that. Uh, go for something that comes from university-based research. And if you do Google searches with site colon dot edu, your answers that come out are going to be from university-based sources. So I could say more about that, but uh, there's a sucker born every minute, and therefore there's lots of snake oils. 43, not starting with a landscape plan. Plant people, horticulturists and gardeners, love lots of plants. And your garden can, and your landscape can end up looking like a bomb went off in a garden center and the plants rooted where they landed. Uh, now, if that's what you want, it's fine. It's your yard. But the more you have a plan, the more you can purchase and plan accordingly. Number 44, not using drip and microsprinkler irrigation. Every time you spray the leaves of those shrubs in the shrub bed or the flowers, you increase the potential for disease problems. And you waste water and you put our high sodium water on the leaves of the plants. And over time, that's not a good thing. So drip waters very efficiently at the soil where the plants want it. And you can get do-it-yourself systems or you can hire someone to do it. 45, not keeping a gardening journal. You know, I have swear a thousand times uh, in my life I have uh, thought I'll remember that and then later kind of forgot it. But when I go back and see my journal, I re-remember things and it helps me become a better gardener. 
Number 46, not reading and following the pesticide label. Again, the teaspoon tablespoon thing applies here, uh, but there are a lot there's a lot of information on a pesticide label. It even organic pesticides, uh, the pesticides or pesticides when it comes to follow the label. Uh, soap, if you spray it, it's an organic product. If you spray it, in a hot sunny day you're likely to burn plant foliage so follow the label 47 mowing too low or too infrequently the shorter you mow the more often you mow because every mowing should cut off one-third of the leaf height of that grass plant so if you had one that's three inches high we're going to mow it to two inches high cut off one-third so the shorter it gets the less it has to grow before it needs to be mowed again and if you don't mow it regularly enough it gets thin and it looks bad and some things like Bermuda grass lawns when you cut back it's like the green is all at the top of the plants like trees in a forest it's all wood and sticks underneath with the green up on top and your lawn just looks brown right after the mowing because you cut back too far so uh, mow often enough to cut off just a third. 48. Mixing too many colors or not using a large swath of color. So you go to the, the garden center and you see all these beautiful colors and the, they're all beautiful and you want them all. That's fine when you plant that flower bed if you're going to view it up close. Then you can look at this coat of many colors and enjoy that flower bed. But the further away you get, those colors just blend into uh, uh, just a mass. You don't appreciate the colors from a distance. So large swaths of color can be appreciated from the road or maybe if you're sitting in the backyard way out at the back fence or whatever whatever you're looking at from a distance. Uh, that you know the large swaths of color they really are especially important when you're creating a large deep perennial bed. Uh, where you may have some taller plants further back in the bed and medium-sized plants and then shorter plants toward the front so that it can be appreciated and viewed. Uh, and if you, to, to kind of, for that to make sense, maybe, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at like a newspaper color, uh, pic, a picture in a newspaper with a magnifying glass, but when you do, you will see that what looks kind of from a distance, like what the picture should look like when you get up close they're just little pixels of all kinds of colors and things and it's a wide variety of things that creates that that blended effect number 49 landscaping without the seasons in mind we have four seasons here we don't have many things that uh, as far as a permanent landscape plant that are going to be blooming in the winter but we do have beautiful structures such as the branches of a crepe myrtle for example uh, but in spring there's things that, that bloom in the spring uh, a lot of things bloom in the spring there are a few things that bloom in summer and then there's things that don't bloom until fall or other things that start blooming in the spring and bloom all the way through to fall so another uh, aspect of seasons is evergreen versus deciduous in the summer you could have a beautiful landscape of all these green plants and then in the winter when you look at it if all the deciduous plants are on the right side of the house and all the evergreens are on the left side of the house that's going to kind of be weird right so think about all four seasons when you when you're buying evergreen versus deciduous uh, when you're wanting to have blooms that carry you through the season uh, the, those would be uh, important things to consider so that your landscape has 
the long-term goals that you want. And in saying that, I would just also add that uh, evergreens that are kind of foundational, we don't have as many options here as perhaps you would up in the Midwest or certain other parts of the country, but we do have options for, the, for evergreens. And the more of those you put in, the more of a foundation you have that uh, then the colors can be added into. Uh, and so I would include uh, the things that are evergreen as much as much as you can uh, and uh, avoid uh, mispruning them too, by the way, uh, as you're doing that. Number 50, believing what you hear or read on TV, on the radio, in print, like a newspaper, a magazine. Here we go, social media uh, and the internet. Now, there's a lot of truth out there, but when there is no research basis for it, when there's no evidence-based trial for it, uh, when there's not research in your particular area for something that was written or broadcast in another area, uh, you are not going to have success. And I can't, I, I, I can't tell you how many times a day I see things that are just not right. They may be based on truth, but they're taken to the point where they're not right. And uh, I, I give a whole show's worth of examples on these things, but uh, something could be, uh, you know, true to a sense in a principle, but then uh, the way it's getting applied is just, is just essentially makes it no longer true. Uh, maybe you're watching a gardening show that's filmed in New Jersey or California or England or some other place, and you see these beautiful plants that you just have to have, like that yellow forsythia of spring, uh, or the lilacs that are so fragrant. Great for those places. They don't do well here. And we constantly try to grow plants outside of our range. Uh, that's just what we do as gardeners. We go vacation in Colorado and bring back uh, uh, columbine seeds, the wrong kind of columbine for Texas. And uh, we bring back a blue spruce that we're going to plant in the yard. Well, you know, there ought to be people standing at the border, the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Plants, and they confiscate those uh, so that we don't torture the plants when we get them back home. Uh, but a lot of thing goes out. And just because it's in print, just because it's in the radio, just because it's on TV does not mean that it's accurate. Uh, I uh, also would like just take a moment and talk a little bit about social media. Uh, social media now is, is just taken over. And uh, you see so much. There's a lot of gardening stuff on social media of various types, uh, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all the others. Uh, Pinterest would be another good example for that. And you see people posting things and it's clear they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. I know a few people on some of the social media sites that are doing a really good job. And then I just see a lot of other things that, that just aren't. And so I would encourage you uh, I mentioned earlier you can do a search by putting site, S-I-T-E, colon, dot E-D-U after whatever you're searching for. So maybe it is roses and then site, colon, dot E-D-U or whatever. That'll tell you, it, it typically gets you to a lot of extension services around the country in our land-grant system, uh, but it also gets you to other universities that are doing research on particular things. and 
you know, maybe it's a, you know, I saw something the other day, a university, it was a Connecticut uh, Ag ex Extension or Experiment Station website, and it had a lot of good information in it. Of course, it had some things that apply to Connecticut, but by checking things out before you believe them, uh, I think you will save yourself a lot of trouble. Uh, you will have more success with your garden, and we garden because we want to enjoy it. And it breaks my heart to hear someone say, yeah, I tried to garden, but I must have a brown thumb. Well, I'm here to tell you there are no brown thumbs. Everybody's thumbs is, is you know, flesh-colored. And so a brown thumb is just, what that really means is it's an untrained thumb. How about that? An uneducated thumb. Because even if you have killed every orchid you've ever grown, for example, uh, when you learn how to take care of the orchid properly, how to give it the conditions at once, orchids can be one of the, uh, the cattle, the moth orchid, Cattleya orchids, can be one of the easiest, or excuse me, Phalaenopsis, not Cattleya, uh, can be one of the easiest orchids to, or plants to grow when you know what it needs. And so the brown thumb thing, I don't buy that. Uh, uneducated, untrained thumb, yes. So you can do something about that. And we have a lot of resources on the line here in uh, uh, Texas AgriLife Extension uh, in Bryan College Station, the, the home uh, university for the, for the extension service, or all the county offices that are out there and all the regional centers. You got free information that you can get, and you should take advantage of it. The Aggie Horticulture website, uh, which is aggie-horticulture.tamu. Dot edu, uh, the uh, we have the soils websites, the soiltesting.tamu.edu, uh, we even have a fireant.tamu.edu, uh, and uh, plant uh, clinic.tamu.edu for diseases, and on and on down the line. Uh, those are resources you can use, and there are other good extension services with good information. Just when you weed out the regional difference, in some cases, uh, real good information on all the things that you might want to grow. So learn about it, find out about it, and that way uh, you won't be the person who one time called me, and they had a uh, apple tree, and they'd had it for seven years, and it hadn't produced an apple yet. And at the time they bought it, if they just knew they needed a separate variety to pollinate, which a good web search could have could have helped them with, or calling their extension office, uh, it would avoid that that kind of problem. So, uh, and trash trees are the worst of all. I mean, I I just hate to see one, and and people when they should have the most beautiful tree, now I'm telling them they they really need to start over because this thing's falling apart. I'm not going to do very well. Well, uh, you've listened uh, to 50, 50 common gardening and landscape mistakes today. Uh, by the way, this will be recorded. It is recorded, and it'll be available on the web at the KEMU-FM website uh, under Garden Success Show. And if you have a, a podcast app, most of the podcast apps that I've checked out uh, do now have Garden Success on them, so you can go listen to past shows as well. So you can tell your friends about that. Uh, they, I think you need to hear this show because I believe you made 49 of the 50 mistakes already from what I see. But anyway, well, we're here every Thursday, uh, to, and normally as a call-in show, to answer your questions, uh, you can call us uh, at the FM station, or you can email me at gardensuccess 
at tamu.edu, and we will answer your questions on the air. I typically can't answer them by email uh, just because there's just not time for all that, but I will answer them on the air and be happy to do that. So we hope you'll tell your friends about Garden Success, and uh, we hope that you will continue to be a listener of the show and be back with us again next Thursday at noon when we're here live again. So thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season uh, and enjoying yourself thoroughly uh, because, you know, when the new year comes and we start thinking spring, gardening fever is going to hit and you got to uh, inoculate yourself with good knowledge before that gardening fever hits. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.